Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The marketplace was particularly busy that day. And uh, he was struggling to find the needed items. Amidst the hustle and the bustle of uh, people selling fish and bread and wine and uh, household goods. He was trying to find more parchment. Parchment was hard to come by. It was a little pricey. Uh, It wasn't readily available. Dunder Mifflin didn't exist yet. If you know what Dunder Mifflin is, you're, you're a younger person. That's okay. He had a difficult time because you didn't just go down to Walmart and find a spiral notebook. And ink was difficult to find too. But he had to hurry because Peter, who didn't write very often, was in a writing mood. And so he had to hurry. He had to find these things. He had to get back to Peter. He had to give them to him because he had this, this unction, is what the old timers call it. This burning in his bones. He had this move of the Holy Spirit, he felt, that he had to get down on paper. He had to write to the churches, to those who were scattered by the persecution that had broken out under Nero. He had to write to them because God had placed this on his heart. He was afraid that uh, this, this infant movement... It just might die right out the gate. And he had heard Jesus' words. He had heard them loud and clear. He had said when they were at Caesarea Philippi, he had heard him say, You, Simon, are now Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Well, Peter felt pretty good about that news back then. A little intimidated, but pretty excited to be named the first pope by Jesus himself right there. And yet all this responsibility, that was a joke, by the way. And yet all this responsibility was placed on his shoulders. His shoulders were pretty broad. He was a fisherman by trade. He spent a lot of time uh, pulling nets up and, and full of fish. And Jesus must have seen that this guy could take it. This guy could handle it. And, and besides, I'm going to send him a helper because he'll need it. It was on that day when they finally found parchment and ink that Peter wrote his first letter. His first letter to all the Christians that were scattered around the ancient world. Now, it was interesting, this whole process of writing a letter, uh, because you, you only made one. And the idea was that they would send it out to the churches. And and these aren't churches like how we think of churches. These weren't buildings with a cross on it because a cross was, after all, an execution uh, style tool. You you didn't put this on a building. It was a a mark of shame. Uh, These were letters that were sent to homes and to other Christians that were scattered around. Peter, with a sense of urgency, wrote... He didn't know how much more time he had. 
He'd been brought before the Sanhedrin a couple times already. He'd been beaten. He'd been imprisoned. And Nero, the emperor, had ramped up quite... It's hard to get your head around the friends, the family he'd seen killed. Those who'd been carted off to Rome and to stand trial. In fact, he knew, he knew that what lay ahead because there was that really exciting yet not so very good day with Jesus on a beach. He'd been walking with Jesus. It was after Jesus had raised from the dead and, and it, was, it was after uh, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus comes up to Peter and he says, Peter, do you, do you love me? Kind of strange for two dudes to be asking this question, but that was kind of the way Jesus rolled. Peter, do you love me? And, and, G, and, and, and Peter said back to Jesus, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? I, I guess he wasn't very convinced with that first answer. Kind of like when I ask you, hey, good morning. And everybody's like, hey, good morning. We have to do that all again. Peter's kind of thinking, maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe this whole death resurrection things affected his hearing. Lord, you know I love you. The third time, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Now he's a little hurt. He's a little frustrated. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart and you know I love you. Jesus, each time he answered, I love you, he said, feed my sheep. He didn't even know Jesus had a ranch. (laughs) But he learned that Jesus was referring to his people, those who would follow Christ. And so he, he took to the work of sharing the stories, of, of sharing about Jesus, who he had known and walked with for three years. He spent a lot of time ch- telling people, what was Jesus like? I mean, could you imagine getting to know somebody who was an eyewitness of this guy? Hey, tell me. Hey, number one, did he look like that up there? <laughs> That'd be one of my first questions. I mean, that's one question everybody's kind of interested in. What would, did Jesus look like, right? Tell me about Jesus. What was he like? What did he do? Hey, Peter, tell us that one story again. Because you got to remember, none of the Gospels were written yet. They hadn't been put down on parchment. I mean, uh, that was work that those guys still had to get done. They were out sharing about Jesus. And Peter is sitting and he's writing because he's realizing that his time is short. Word is that Nero wants him. He wants Peter and he wants to bring him to Rome. He remembers that beachside discussion with Jesus where after Jesus said, feed my sheep, he also said, someday they're going to take you to a place you do not want to go. And they're going to stretch out your arms. And he said this to tell him the way that he would die in order to glorify Jesus. 
Peter knew it was a reference to his own crucifixion. And he knew. (laughs) Or actually, he didn't know. If he'd be tough enough to do it. Church tradition teaches that Peter was executed by crucifixion in Rome. The Bible doesn't tell us how it went down, but church tradition also teaches that because he didn't feel worthy to die the same type of death that his Savior had died, that he requested to be executed upside down. And honestly, it's highly unlikely because the crosses that they were executed upon didn't have the upper part of the cross on them. It's just a T-shape. So most likely Peter died in the same way Christ did. But before that, he wrote first what's become known as First Peter. And First Peter has some directions to the early church. I mean, think about it. What would you try to impart to people when you when you this is the this is the family business and you're a little bit worried it's not going to keep going on after you. You're not quite sure if this thing is going to continue. You're not quite sure if the people who are are being brutally murdered, thrown to lions and 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 placed in the arena for amusement Those who are being burnt at the stake by Nero to light his garden parties in Rome. You're not quite sure if this thing, this this thing called the church is going to take off. And if it's going to get traction, you have no idea. I mean, you've seen some amazing stuff. You've done some amazing stuff if you're Peter. But you're not quite sure if it's going to make it. You ever been there? You ever been there in your own life where you're not quite sure something that you've poured a lot of time and energy, sweat, blood, tears into is not going to make it? That's where Peter finds himself. And he writes to those persecuted, suffering Christians. What would you write? Hey, hang in there. Keep trying. You can do it. This too shall pass. Every dark cloud has a silver lining. All things work together for good for those who know. No, that's Paul's stuff. That one. What would you write? I always find it interesting what these guys decided to write. I mean, when you just throw it back into its context and you realize the odds, when you realize what's going on and you're like, wow. Peter. Peter had some real sharp words for the church. Important words for the church. And instead of telling us about what we should do, he starts out by reminding them who they are. What they are. Because Jesus had made it clear that it's out of our hearts we act, we speak. (laughs) Seems in our country we forget that. We get it backwards. People get on TV after a mass murder or or after a, a suicide or after somebody does some heinous crime. And they're like, man, I never thought he'd do that. He's not like that at all. Jesus 2,000 years ago said that out of your heart, 
you act. Peter's busy trying to remind them because this movement, the church, is on a razor's edge. Now, before we look at what Peter wrote, one of the things that I want you to, to, con- to, to think about and to consider this morning is this whole notion of the fact that we bought land to build a church on. <laughs> That's just crazy. It's exciting, but a little bit crazy. We bought land to build a new church on. And we, uh, two Sundays from now, are going to get together. We're going to have a potluck. We're going to start dreaming. We're going to start planning. We're going to start, start trying to figure out what to do with this land. And the elders and myself, we feel like we have some, some good ideas of where God is leading this thing. But what is pestering me a little bit? Because I've been pestered a little bit lately. What's been keeping me, I, I sleep really sound, so I guess it doesn't keep me up at night. What's, what's been haunting my nap time during the day is if we just build a building, if we just build a building and we slap a name up there that says church, will there really be a church there? You see, one of the things that I wrestle with and that I've heard from some of you is if we build this church and you leave, Steve, what happens? And you know what my honest answer is to that? I hope the church continues. (laughs) I hope it thrives. I hope it grows. I hope it continues to reach people because the church is not me. And it's not any one person that you pay to be good. (laughs) The church is you. The church is you. And whatever building we meet in, because remember, when Peter wrote his letter, it wasn't to church buildings. It was to the church, the people who gathered in homes under the threats of persecution under the threat of death, under the threat of imprisonment. It was to those people that Peter wrote. You are the church. What will our church be like and look like? How will we make this thing work? You see, Peter, even though Jesus had said some amazing things, upon this rock, I will build my church. That's pretty amazing. That's a pretty big deal. And Peter knew, I'm going to get taken out. I mean, Jesus himself told me I'm going to get taken out by crucifixion. So I guess Jesus isn't going to build this church for long on me. And scholars have wrestled with that passage. And many have decided that what Jesus meant is not the actual person of Peter. He he meant the testimony, the witness, the life of Peter. And that testimony, that witness has been handed down for 2,000 years. And it's arrived here in Ray, Colorado, someplace that Peter had never heard of. Never would have even imagined. And now it's our job to continue passing on Peter's story. Now, a question that a lot of people ask is, how on earth did... Sit down. (laughs) 
Just kidding, Brian. Just kidding. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that so bad. <laughs> Had my chance. Sorry, Brian. Love you. <laughs> Broke the tension. Now you feel better. One of the things that scholars wrestle with is how did the church survive? How did it thrive? And especially secular scholars, because they kind of remove the whole God element, the whole supernatural element, and they wrestle with how did this thing make it out of the first century? How did it make it out of the first hundred years? How on earth did Christianity become dominant in the West? Sociologists and professors and doctors and probably some lawyers even have studied this and they've tried to figure out what this looks like and how did it succeed. A man named Michael Green, he wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. Evangelism in the Early Church. You don't think about evangelism in the early church, right? You think about the letters, you think about the apostles, you think those guys have been around forever. They always had this thing. I mean, they always had it in this form. People always had private devotionals for a few minutes in the morning. They always had uh, this daily bread or our daily bread or everybody's daily bread or whatever the devotional was called. They've always had that. (laughs) You know, there was a group of people that received this for the very first time. Heard it for the first time. Wrestled with it for the first time. I want you to just, you know, imagine yourself at home, not here. Imagine receiving a a letter from somebody you highly respect. You want their opinion on things. You know what? You want to know what they have to say about stuff. And you've gathered some family and friends because this is an important letter. That's what this church thing looks like when they receive this letter. I find it interesting what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, who do you think he's referring to there? You, y'all, yeah. It's actually like Texas, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a plural you. It's y'all. So in our highly individualistic country, which we are all part of, and by the way, rural America is really highly individualistic. Don't know if you've noticed this. People live really far from each other. I think that's because they don't like to get along with other folks. Just the theory. I don't know. I lived in the city. You have to work things out with people. Like all the time. I don't live in the city anymore. I guess I didn't get it. Figured out very well. (laughs) Paul writes, or excuse me, Peter writes this. But y'all are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. (laughs) None of that is an individual term, is it? That's all a collective group of people. It's like when 9-11 happened. And we thought of ourselves as a a collection of people. We thought of ourselves as a nation of people. We weren't thinking about ourselves as individuals on that day. Hmm, I wonder what I'm going to have at McDonald's now. No, because that would have been grossly negligent of what it meant to be an American on that day. 
So instead we sat and we watched TV or, or it's been like the last few weeks when we watch fellow Coloradans, even though there are some here who'd like to make this another state, we still feel some camaraderie to Colorado and our fellow Coloradans because we know Boulder. We know the front range. We know people there and we think of ourselves as I'm a Coloradan and I'm, I'm praying for them. We think in this, this collective way, and that's what Peter is trying to say. Because, by the way, back then, they didn't think of themselves as individuals. <laughs> Did you know that? This culture is so different than ours. It's so hard for us to understand this. They didn't think of themselves as individuals. They thought of themselves as tribes, as groups, as nations. I mean, that's what made you what you were, is, is what you were part of. Peter says... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Guess what Americans usually focus on in that passage? Just, just a guess. My guess is God's special possession. Right? Because we all want to think, well, God thinks I'm special, you know. Well, by the way, he thinks everybody's special, which makes all of, nobody special, kind of, sort of, right? How does that work? <laughs> Always thought about that. That's the part that we tend to focus on. God's special possession. Oh, God just sits around in heaven and he's thinking happy thoughts about me. Lovey thoughts about me. And if that's what you focus on, you missed it. You all missed it. Y'all missed it. Because Peter is emphasizing y'all. <laughs> y'all. Not you. I mean, yeah, sort of you. God's, but that's not the point. You all are God's chosen people. Plural. Royal priesthood. Not royal priest. Holy nation. You get what he's saying there? This is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than Pete. And he understood that and he wrote it. And he said, if this thing's going to thrive, if this thing's going to move out of the first century, we've got to get this down, folks. We have got to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. We've got to get the gospel deep down inside of us so we know who we are as a group of people. Because if we don't come together... The Romans are going to rip us apart. If we don't come together, this world is going to tear us apart. This persecution is going to destroy us. This suffering is going to hammer us. This is not going to make it. You've got to come together, says Pete. And Christianity is so weird compared to all other religions that have emerged at this time. Did you know that the Romans believed that Christians were atheists because they didn't have temples, because they didn't offer sacrifices to a God or the gods, that they got together and they did this stuff in secret? Because back then you wouldn't invite just anybody to church because you don't know, they might turn around and report you. People didn't just go, hey, come with me to church. The, you got to see the preacher in jeans. It's weird. They wouldn't invite just anybody. They had tests to make sure that these folks were genuine followers of Jesus before they were allowed into the meetings. 
And so there was all these crazy rumors that the Romans started to write about. And they had all these crazy concoctions. I mean, by about the, the love feast is what the early Christians called this communion, the love feast. And they all started calling it crazy stuff where one writer from the ancient world talked about a baby being rolled in dough and popped in the oven. <laughs> Brought out for the love feast. Because Christians talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. And so they thought, well, maybe that's the sacrifice. None of us have been there to see it, but maybe that's the sacrifice. And by the way, that's not what that means or anything else, okay? If you're new here, that was just stale bread you got, okay? They made up stories. They couldn't figure it out. And they believed that they were atheists because they had no temples. They had no sacrifices. Because Christians believe that Jesus was the one and only sacrifice. The sacrifices of sacrifices. It brought all sacrifice to an end when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to God. You understand what that means? Do you understand what Peter is saying here? He's saying you're all priests. <laughs> so break out the collars, right? He's saying you are all a royal priesthood. What do we think of when we think of royalty? We think of kings and queens. He's saying you're a king, you're a queen, and you're a priest. You see, in the ancient world, kings could not be priests. And when those two offices got merged, bad stuff happened. And there was a third office in Israel, and that was the role of prophet. And Peter is like, he's saying, you are kings and priests and prophets. Y'all are those things. Anybody wake up that that way, feeling that way this morning? I'm a priest. I mean, you know, that's not going to make the nighttime uh, self-help circuit, is it? You know? Just every morning, wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am a priest and I'm a prophet. I mean, no, that's not going to sell well. Be like, huh, what? This guy's. But that's what Pete's saying. You are a king, a priest and a prophet. And he wants the people to know this so that this movement can get out of the first century. And when you read Michael Green and when he comes up with a list, he says that there were two things that helped the church get out of the first century. There were two things that helped it move on. It was holy lives and open mouths. Holy lives and open mouths. And when he talks about holy, when Pete talks about holy, I don't know what you think of, but the meaning of holy is different. It means you're different. To be holy is to be different. I don't know how different the church is nowadays. And Peter is saying, you are a, Holy nation. Your allegiance is to being different for Christ's sake. What 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 did that look like in the early church? Well, Michael Green put together a list for us. He says, this is how effective evangelism occurred in the early church. This is how they got the gospel into their neighbors' lives, into people's lives. He said, he lists, this list of early Christians that they were, they were famous for these things. Like you can read 
other people who observed Christians' lives. And they wrote about these things. He says they were famous, that they were unusual, they were remarkable, and they were well known for being these things. People of integrity. Generous. Hospital. Hospitality, excuse me. Sympathy. They handled adversity extremely well. Chastity. And seeking equity. You see what Michael Green and other scholars have seen in the writings of those outside of the church. They saw that these people went, huh, they're different. They don't lie. In their dealings, they are honest. And they are transparent. And they're not just looking to get ahead like everybody else in the ancient world was. They were fair. They saw people who were generous to their employees and to their neighbors who shared regularly out of what they had. They saw people who practiced hospitality unlike their neighbors and unlike other people in the ancient world. They invited people, especially the poor and the widow and the orphan into their homes. They experienced a group of folks who were sympathetic. They cared for people, not only of their own tribe and race and folks who look like them. They cared for everybody. They handled adversity. I mean, they died with the praises of God on their lips. They died by forgiving those who were killing them. They were not people who had time for bitterness or remorse or hatred. These were folks who practiced forgiveness and kindness and chastity. They, they didn't participate in sex outside of marriage and, and they, were, they practiced fidelity in marriage. So contrary to the culture of the ancient world. So contrary to the ancient world back then that it got them noticed. They were famous for it. And seeking equity. They were well known for caring about the common good of their towns, of their communities. Are you known for these things? Are you known for a holy life? You see, I hear regularly people complaining, oh, America's just going down the tubes and this is horrible. And I'm like, are you helping any? Look at this list. Do you live a holy life? Are you a person of integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy? Do you handle adversity well? Are you a person that practices chastity? Are you seeking equity? If you don't do those things, you're part of the problem. Is that clear? Take me out and stone me. It happened to the other guys early on. Can't believe I have the audacity to preach this message to Americans today. But God is calling us to be a holy nation, not America, you, the church. America is not a holy nation. It's just another nation that is one of man's creations. The church is God's creation. The church is God's nation. And the church is far bigger than America. Are you part of the holy nation? They lived with open mouths. 
Not only were they holy, but they lived with an open mouth. What would that look like today? Because if I told you what they did back then, you wouldn't understand it because it was so bizarre what was going on back then. I mean, when people, they didn't have abortions back then. So when they had a baby they didn't like, they just exposed it to the elements to die. And we would think, oh, nobody would ever do that nowadays. And for the most part, most folks wouldn't do that. And there'd be somebody, even a non-Christian would run to the rescue of that child nowadays. But back then, it was only Christians. It was only followers of the way. It was only followers of Jesus who were rescuing these kids. Paying to bring them up and to educate them and to give them a better life. It was only Christians. In that day and age, when there was an epidemic that would come through and it would wipe out a quarter of the town's population, everybody else would abandon the sick. I don't care if it was your mom, dad, brother, sister. I mean, number one, they didn't have germ theory. They had no idea what was going on. It was like a a breakout of the wraths of the gods. And the best way to avoid this is to get away from those people. And Christians hung in there. They cared for people who weren't even their own. And now in this day and age, we never imagined doing that kind of thing. We have hospitals. We have folks who would take care of them. So what does this look like to live a life with an open mouth? Well, maybe there's somebody at church who's younger Christian than you. And you see them wanting to learn and grow. Do you think, oh, that's the pastor's gig? Or do you think, I I could come alongside that person? Because I believe that everyone is a priest. Everyone. That's why I'm not Catholic. That's why I'm a Protestant. I protested the idea that there were priests and non-priests. And I believe, like Martin Luther, that all were priests who know Christ. And so when we see somebody who's younger in the faith, do we come alongside them? Do we encourage them? Do we help them? Do we help them to grow? Do we come alongside couples? Maybe you're in a marriage that things are going well and you see some other couples and you see that they're going through some difficult times. Do you come alongside them ever so gently and encourage them and help them and say, hey, here's a book I read. Here's a seminar I went to. Here's something I did and it really helped in my marriage. Or do we just go, "Eh, it's none of my business. Do we see kids who need to grow in Christ? Kids that are far from Christ. High school full of them. And do we look at that as an opportunity as a teacher or an administrator or a parent or a volunteer or however to just flood that place with the influence that we have through Christ? Or do we abandon it and say, hey, stinks to be them. Do we leverage our opportunities that God puts in front of us to open our mouths to help folks understand who Christ is? I keep thinking if just 25% of all the people in congregations in this town would get this, I think if just 25% of the people in this church got this, we would change Ray forever. Amen. We would change Yuma County forever. And the reason it's not happening is because we're not living holy lives and we're not living lives with open mouths. I mean, maybe there's a handful, but it's not enough. 
And I read regularly about people who are worried about the future of Christianity in this country. I read regularly about people who are talking about this being a post-Christian nation, a post-Christian generation. Did you know that 60% of folks in this country who claim a different religion outside of Christianity don't know a single Christian? 60% of the people who are Muslims, 60% of the people who are Hindus, 60% of the people who are any other religion other than a Christian, they don't even know a Christian. 60%. That sounds like, that sounds like losing to me. I thought 40% is bad. Maybe it's just because I'm American and I'm all about statistics and stuff. But if those trends continue, I don't care how you vote. I don't care where you protest. I don't care what you get upset about. I don't care how many recall elections there are. I don't care what goes on. This country's radically changing if we don't change the hearts of people to know Christ. And honestly... I don't share that because I'm just, you know, this big America guy. I share that because I'm a big, you're a holy nation guy. And that's the nation I want to see God build. The crazy thing, throughout world history, whenever God's holy nation grows, when it thrives and grows the most, it's when there's horrible odds against it. So you know what I'm praying for? I'm praying that that doesn't have to happen here. That God will grow a holy nation and continue to bless us. And I believe that this church is a part of that. This new church facility, yeah, that's a part of it. But this church, (laughs) y'all, are part of that. That's how we're going to get it done. And so if tomorrow morning I wake up and I have a seizure and I can't function and I can't preach and I can't do these things, guess what? Next man up. Next woman up. God wants this done. He does. He wants his priests, his priesthood, not to build a building, but to change Ray, Colorado. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to be a people who are living holy lives. That we we would just be remarkable because of how different we are. That sometimes folks would shake their heads at us and go, man, that's just weird. But we wouldn't do it to bring us any sort of uh, notoriety or any kind of attention to ourselves. We would do it for you. Because as we live these holy lives, you will open up doors and opportunities for us to open our mouths, to speak the gospel into people's lives, to transform marriages and transform kids and change communities. 
Lord, I pray that you would instill each of these folks here, those who know Christ, each of them, a king, a priest, a prophet. May they walk out of here knowing those things. May they know that the future of the church in Ray is on them. And Holy Spirit, you love that. You want to use them. You want to grow them. You want to grow your church. May this be a church, Lord, that Jesus is excited to grow. May this be a church that is on the offensive. The gates of hell will not prevail. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you give you peace. (laughs) May you live a holy life with an open mouth. Amen.